Good morning, Four Oaks. If we don't know each other, I'm Pastor Paul. So glad to see um, so many of you folks trickling back in, and it's great to see your faces. Thanks for those who are joining us online. You know, I was out last week, and I've never felt so unneeded in all of my life. Um, in the best way, in the most super encouraging way, just to, to hear Greg bring the word, and then to see Pastor Scott serve. He had kind of risen from the grave, and that was encouraging. And then Joe leading worship on Sunday morning, Sunday nights, and um, Pastor Rob teaching um, on Sunday nights for us. You know, I was out on our porch and I could sort of hear the sunset service going on. I couldn't quite discern all the words, but I, I knew it was going on. And just to think about all the, the folks, our staff and volunteers who put those things together. Um, Four Oaks, we've just been blessed with an amazing team um, here at Four Oaks. And just be sure to thank them this season. Now, speaking of the sunset service, as, we, as you heard from Aaron, this is our last one, not forever and ever, but um, we hit, um, we go back to standard time next week. And so it's going to be all Alaska up in here with the sunset at four and stuff like that. And so we're going to reboot that um, or in 2021, we're going to make it seasonal when the time changes back and those sorts of things. But if you've been with us, it has been a special, special um, time and gathering. And we're going to be in James chapter two tonight, um, asking the question, is your faith real? And no more important question to ask than that one. And hope you can, hope you can join us in sweet times. But this morning we are in Genesis chapter 46. So if you have your Bibles, trust you do open those up. For those of you who know the Gilberts, you know that we are not so secret Andy Griffith fans. And, you know, fans is a short word for fanatics, right? And so, um, you know, whether it was growing up and watching the reruns on TBS, remember those days of graham crackers and tang, my mom would feed me while I watched the reruns. And, um, but early in our marriage, in the early 90s, I made it a goal that I was going to record on VHS. Do you remember those days, people? Okay, VHS, I was going to record every single Andy Griffith episode and didn't quite get there, but I, I did dozens and dozens. Now, if you're a big Andy Griffith fan, you know that one of the points of high controversy when it comes to Andy Griffith episodes is, did it record the epilogue, right? You know, the epilogue is that little tag right at the end of the, of the episode that sort of brings it together and brings some closure and communicates some tidbits of information. If you don't care about Andy Griffith epilogues, then clearly this illustration is not for you, okay? I, t- I totally get that. But the epilogues is, are always those things at the end of our, our shows that, that bring some vital tidbit of information. Maybe the main action has passed. Maybe the main point or culmination has already happened. But if, if you ended it there, it would just feel so, uh, you know, just incomplete. It would feel just cut off. And that's exactly what we have in Genesis 46 through 50. Can you believe we only have five chapters left in our journey through Genesis. And what Genesis 46 through 50 is, is essentially one long epilogue. See, the decisive moment we know was from last week in Genesis 45, where Joseph revealed himself to his traitorous brothers. And there's reconciliation and forgiveness and restoration and provision. But yet, if we ended things after 45, there's a ton of loose ends right? There, we're, there's all sorts of unanswered questions. Well, what happened in this reunion between Jacob and Joseph after 22 years? What, what was it like to get this 
dysfunction junction of a family back together after all of this time. Um, how, how does this play out? What happens next? What happens in their next phase of life? But most importantly, it would leave us with this sort of burning question. How in the world does God's people going down to Egypt, how in the world does that fit into the sovereign plan of God? How in the world are we to make sense of this? God had made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it was to establish them in this piece of dirt in Canaan. But here they go. They're packing everything they own. They're going off. Who knows when will they be back? And we're faced with all these pressing questions. What is God up to? Will he be faithful to his promises? And let me just say, church, that a lot of us may feel like this season that we are in the middle of a journey to Egypt. We are discombobulated. We are disoriented spiritually. Maybe we look around at one another and there seems to be more that divides us than unites us. That's a deception, but it seems that way. We may wonder just on a personal level what God is doing in our own lives, what God is doing in our church family, our relationships, just our culture at large. And we ask the same sorts of questions I think God's people were asking. And so that's where we're going this morning. Now I'm going to read Genesis 46. And just so you know, this is one of those chapters that has those, one of those long genealogies in it. And our uh, propensity is to want to tune out. Um, these are very weird names. And I'm going to butcher a bunch of them. But because you don't know the difference, you won't know, right? Or I'll just blame it on the Hebrew. Well, that's what it says. The scholar said that in the Hebrew. But, but we're, we're, we tend to tune these out, but we don't want to do that for two reasons. Number one, if someone was to read out your family lineage, would you want somebody to tune your name out? I think not, right? But nor number two, and most importantly, there is a reason, a very important reason, a spiritual reason, a theological reason why Moses, when he is compiling this, includes this list of people that are heading down to Egypt. And we're going to find out about that as we as we come to that place in the story. But here we go. We're going to be in Genesis 46. I'm going to begin with verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all of his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok and Pelu and Hezron and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Jemiel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, 
and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, the sons of Levi, Gershon, Koath, and Merari, the sons of Judah, Er, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah, but Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamul, the sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Job, and Shimron, the sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, Jehil. These are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padan Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shunai, Esben, Eri, Erodi, and Ariel. These sons of um, Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, with Sarah their sister, and the sons of Barai, Habar, and Milkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph, and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Esneth, the daughter of Pharaoh, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mupin, Hupin, clearly twins, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The son of Dan, Husham, the sons of Naphtali, Jashil, Guni, Jaser, and Shalem. These are the sons of Bela, whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and all these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. Now, all the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and father's household who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keeping, been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Let's pray. Lord, when we come to a text like this that's 3,500 years old, we can operate under the deception that this has little to do with us. But Lord, you've made a promise in your word that your word goes forth from you and it does not return to you void. It accomplishes everything for which you have set it forth. And so, Father, we're praying that promise over our hearts and our time this morning. So make your word real and alive to us. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, when it comes to family reunions, I don't think there's any middle ground with them. Either you love them or you loathe them, right? 
And I had a friend in college, Susan and I did, her name was Beth, she was Susan's roommate. She loved her family reunion. In fact, they did a family reunion every summer. It was a week-long extravaganza at some little um, camp in West Tennessee, and they called it Tabernacle. And it was everything you would think Tabernacle should be, right? There was a lot of worship. There was tent meetings. There literally were hundreds of people all related somehow, some way. We live in Tennessee after all, right? And they're all coming together and they're singing and praying and worshiping. And you bring your friends and you might even meet your spouse, which some did. Again, this is Tennessee, right? And in a lot of ways, what we have here in Genesis 46 is a family reunion. Finally, the dysfunctional family is going to be back under the same roof. They're all going to be in one place. I mean, it's been 22 years, right, since Joseph has seen his father Jacob. Clearly, even before that, Joseph and his brothers were at enmity. They've never been a family, not a functional one at least. But as they're coming together, just remember, this isn't just merely nostalgia. This isn't barbecue, baked beans, potato salad. This was a crucial point in the history of redemption. You see, God had promised the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. He appeared over 100, 200 years before to Abraham and said, Abraham, listen, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your descendants numerous as the stars. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to use Israel, the land of Israel, the people of Israel as a staging ground in which to bless all the nations of the world. But as we've seen throughout this whole story, this family is fragmented. It is dysfunctional. It is at odds. It is under threat of extinction from this family or from this famine, and, but now they are a family that's going down to Egypt. And they are wondering, how in the world, God, does this fit into your plan? What are you up to? You said that you were going to make us a great nation right here in Canaan. But somehow, some way, it seems like we're not coming back to Canaan anytime soon. This doesn't make sense. What is he wanting to teach the people of Israel? What is he wanting to teach us? Two points for us this morning. Here we go. We're going to talk about God's future promises. And then we're going to talk about God's present grace. God's future promises, God's present grace. Let's look first at his promises. Verse 1, it says, Jacob and his family packed up all of their stuff. They aren't coming back, right? I don't know how many pods this is, but it's a lot. They're, they're mobilizing everything they own, every person that's a part of their household, their servants, the whole kit and caboodle, the kids, the grandkids. And it says they come to Beersheba. Now, here's what's interesting about Beersheba geographically. One, it's in the southern part of Canaan, and it's, the, it's, the, it's, the la, it's sort of the court of last resort. It's the last sort of civilized place before they begin that long trek across the Sinai Peninsula, the desert into Egypt. Imagine for a second Frodo and Sam at the edge of Gondor. They're, they're getting ready to head across the dead marshes um, before they come to Mordor. This is it. And so they're pausing and they're sacrificing and they're asking God's blessing and they're fearful, no doubt. Now remember, Beersheba is significant for, for several reasons. One, this is where Jacob grew up. 
This is where Isaac, his father, had established his sort of territory. This was the very first place that God had appeared to Abraham to give him the covenantal promises. Beersheba is a sacred place for Jacob and for the people of God. It's where God had given them the covenant promises. Now, on one hand, we have to say, surely, of course, Jacob is going to be nervous before, before this big trip. Don't you get nervous before a big trip? And you know you ought to sleep, but the harder you try to sleep, um, you can't sleep. That's never happened to me. I just heard about that happening to somebody, right? And I mean, you, you kind of get that pit in your feeling. Oh, he's going to meet his son. I mean, he hasn't seen his son in 22 years. But that doesn't seem to be how Jacob is feeling. He's not merely nervous. He seems to be fearful. He seems to be terrified. In fact, look, look at verse 3. God tells Jacob, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Why in the world? This is about to be his moment of triumph. It's his big family reunion. He's about to see Joseph. We have to remember, this journey did not represent triumph to Jacob. This represented confusion, uncertainty. God had promised to build him and his people into this mighty nation. He had promised him this piece of land in Canaan to be a staging ground to bless the nations. None of this made any sense. And as I said at the beginning of this sermon, some of us might feel like personally we are in Egypt in this season of our lives. Things are not going according to plan. This is not where I thought I would be, God. It's not where I thought my family would be. It's not where I thought my marriage would be. I thought we were going to to pitch our tent in Canaan, but here we are journeying around, wandering around in the desert, going to Egypt. I think that the body of Christ collectively feels a little bit or a lot of it this way this season. Like, God, we're being pressed in. God, we're, 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 there, there's deep divides even among the body of Christ about this issue and that issue. And God, we're wrestling. It feels like this is not the way it's supposed to be. And we're, we're wrestling through those things. We're asking God, how does all of this fit together? God, what are you doing? That's Jacob. That's Jacob. So in a vision, God appears to him and he says, Jacob, Jacob. Now remember that Moses uses the name Israel for Jacob whenever he's talking about the collective group, the identity, the community. But when God wants to get real with Jacob, he calls him Jacob. That's his common name. That's his name that Jacob had, remember, when he was frail and and full of deceit and anxious and fearful and not trusting in the promises of God. Remember how God came to him, changed his name, gave him this new name. And so it's as if God's coming down, coming down to Jacob and saying, Jacob, Jacob, listen, here's, here's the one thing I want you to know before you make this journey down to Egypt. Look at verse three, do not fear. I am God. You know, there's several names in the Hebrew for God, but the one that's here is just plain old God, El. And what it 
designates is this idea that, that Jacob, I'm not just your God or the God of your people, although I am that. Jacob, I'm not just some localized deity, but the name God here designates, signifies this idea that I am God of the universe. I am the God of the world. I am the God over the nations. I am the God over everything that's happening. You're worried about what's happening in this little sliver of my creation. And by all means, Jacob, I'm concerned too. I'm concerned for you. But I want you to know, Jacob, I've got this. This is not a surprise. This has not taken me off guard. I didn't just wake up one morning and like, my goodness, there's a famine in the land. What are we going to do, Jesus and Holy Spirit? Tell, let's, let's counsel together. No, 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 Jacob. I, I've got my hand firmly on the wheel. And I just have to ask right now, where in your life do you and I need to be reminded of that? That God has made promises. God does not go back on his word. And this is why so often in the Old Testament we see this same refrain. And I'm, I'm going to quote it once from Leviticus 26. It says this. This is God speaking, and I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. I will walk among you. It's a future promise. Ken Matthews puts it this way. He says, the patriarch's God is an I will God. See, here, God is reminding Jacob, yes, I've been faithful in the past. And yes, I'm being faithful right now in the present. But Jacob, you've got to trust me. You've got to walk in faith. I am the God of the future. I am the I will God. And we see here that God promises Jacob several things. Number one, he promises that he's going to see Joseph again. When it says that Joseph is going to close your eyes, um, they're not playing peekaboo here, right? It, it's, it's a metaphor. It just simply means you're going to have peace and resolution with, with Jacob. We're going to talk about that in just a second. <clears throat> but secondly, <clears throat> he says, I'm going to make you a great nation, but I'm not going to do it in Canaan. I'm going to do it in Egypt. I'm going to bring you down to Egypt, and then I'm going to bring you back up again. Now, this is sort of a double entendre. So this is kind of what it means. Do you know, Jacob would be taken back up to Egypt, literally and physically. We're going to get to the chapter where he dies. Joseph has him embalmed by the Egyptian embalmers so that they have time to take his body back up to its resting place in Canaan to be buried with the patriarch. So it certainly has that in view. But and on a more fundamental level, what God is promising is that, Jacob, I am going to bring my people back up again from Egypt. See, Jacob knew he wasn't coming back. And can, can you imagine how hard that would be? Can, 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 are, are there times in your life where you don't want to go to sleep because you're afraid of what's going to happen while you're asleep? 
You're, 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 there's something you're worrying about or someone you know is on a trip or, you're, or your children are traveling or they're out late and, and you're, you, you want to be in control. You want to stay up. You want to like have your hands on the wheel. But it's as if God is saying, no, 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 Jacob. I know you're moving hundreds of miles away. You're going to die in Egypt. But you're just going to, when you put your head down, when you die, you're going to have to die in faith. You're going to have to trust that I'm going to be faithful to my promises. And so he's, just, he's saying all this to Jacob because Jacob had a choice. Is, does he believe God? Brooks, I, I fundamentally believe so much of what we struggle with in this season, if we could just get to the very bottom of it, the root of it, do we trust God? Do we believe him? Do we think he's going to be faithful to his promises to build his church? See, we have to be reminded, and I think this is what God is reminding Jacob of. As the people of God, you realize, don't you, where we are in the story. We're in Egypt. We are not in the promised land. That awaits the new heavens and the new earth. And sometimes we are so shocked when things in Egypt don't function like they should in the promised land. They never were intended to. Guys, we are sojourners. We are strangers. We are exiles. And by the way, if Jesus tarries, if he doesn't come back in our lives, guess what? We are going to die in Egypt. We are going to die in faith. We are not home yet. And so as we're being pressed in, marginalized, disrespected, discriminated against, whatever your experience is, the church's experience is, can can I just make a plea to you as your pastor? Don't become embittered. Don't become angry. Don't become politicized with each other, with the world. Take your concerns to God. Trust in him. Walk in faith. Now, let me tell you why I think Moses decided to record these genealogies for us. It says that 70 people made their way down to Egypt. And commentators debate about what comprises the 70. How in the world could Benjamin already have 10 sons? And he was just, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's most likely the number of people that ended up in Egypt, okay, that were descendants of of Jacob. And it's probably like there's some some, uh, symbolism, some imagery in this number. It's to signify completeness. It was probably around 70. That's the point. But why does Moses make such a big deal? Why did Moses make pastors have to read passages like that, right? Well, think about this. 430 years later, as God's people are reading this passage, they're going to see, oh, there's the faithfulness of God. Oh, that's what God was doing. That's how God has been faithful to his promises. 70 people, but now we are two million strong. You see, God is building his church for Oaks. God is being faithful to his people. 
even as his people are in Egypt. Now, here's what I find extraordinary about this and just kind of learn this, studying this passage this week. Do you realize that from the time that God made this promise to Jacob, that God does not speak to his people again, ready, for 430 years? The next time God speaks or appears in a theophany to his people, you know when it is? When Moses runs into God at a burning bush. And I want you to think about where the people of Israel, how they had to live in faith for those 430 years. All they had had to rely on, ready, were the promises of God passed down to them by their fathers and their forefathers. And they had to remember and they had to be tempted not to despair because God says, I am going to fulfill my promise in your life. And so this genealogy was meant to greatly encourage them. It was also meant, and you'll notice there's a couple of places in here where Moses notes that there were actually Canaanite uh, people, the enemies of God, who were part of the lineage of the people of God. And it was as if to remind them, you're leaving Canaan one day, but one day you'll come back and all of Canaan is going to belong to me. These two souls, these Canaanites that trusted in me, that's just a foretaste. See, there's going to be Rahab, there's going to be others, but my glory is going to fill that land. And church, we need, to be remember, we need to be reminded as we are in the middle of Egypt, one day the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord just as the waters cover the sea. You can bank on it. You can be sure of it. And because of it, you and I can walk in faith. Now, God's future promises, but he's also given us a present grace. This will be our last point. And I want to mention three specific ways that God is gracious to Jacob and his people in the midst of their sojourning in Egypt. And by the same token, three means of grace or three gifts of grace that he's given us as we live in our Egypt today. And as I unpack these, we'll keep telling the story. So number one, God has given us his mediation or a mediator. Now remember from previous chapters that Judah has emerged clearly as the faithful brother, as the righteous remnant, as the lawful descendant to the promises of the patriarchs. And what we see here is that Judah is sent ahead of this traveling clan of 70 folks. Okay. Can you imagine traveling with 70 folks? all the minivans involved and all that in the camp. I mean, can you imagine, right? And, and so they're like, hey, this is going to take forever. Hey, we've stopped eight times at the rest area, the same one. And so they're, we're, we're sending Judah ahead. Now, here's what's significant about this. Who was it 22 years before who brokered the severed relationship between Jacob and Joseph? It was Judah. Remember? Judah was the one that says, don't kill him. Let's make a quick buck from that, from, from the sale of him. Let's, let's, let's sell him into slavery and get 20 silver coins. And now, oh, how the tables have turned. And by God's redemptive grace, now Judah is not the one who is, who is inserting this 
fissure into the relationship. But in fact, he is playing the decisive role as the mediator. He is bringing Jacob and Joseph and his families back together again. And we've said this a few times before, but remember, Jesus descends from what line? The line of Judah. And the most fundamental thing, though, that distinguishes Judah from Jesus is that Judah was guilty doing what he could to mediate for the innocent. But Jesus is innocent and laying down his very life to mediate for the guilty, and that's you and I. One of the things, one of the promises that God has given us, one of the graces that God has given us for this life, for our sojourn in Egypt, folks, is to remember that no matter what happens, no matter if everyone abandons us, no matter if we were thrown into prison, no matter if we don't have a home, our spouse turns their back on us, our, our children run away, the, whatever the, the most horrific thing that you can think of for what it would mean to be alive and to lose everything. God has made a rock-solid promise, and he has said this, I will be your mediator through Jesus Christ. I am with you. I love you. I will never abandon you. You know, when we are struggling in our walks with Christ, when we are struggling through areas of sin, we oftentimes feel like, surely this is somehow going to alter Jesus's role as our mediator, surely he could not love me, accept me for what I've done or for who I am. But you need to know, folks, that we have an intermediary, Jesus, a mediator who is right now sitting at the right hand of God the Father. And guess what he's doing? He's praying for you. Guess what he's doing? When you sin, he's not drawing up a set of charges against you. He's presenting the blood of his son. And say, my blood covers that. There, there is no greater hope in life or death than to know that you belong to Jesus and that he is mediating for you. He is enough. Second thing that God gives us as a grace in this life is his peacemaking. Um, Go back to the story for a second. It says that Joseph rose in haste and got on his chariot. Now, this is not the equivalent of somebody unexpected shows up at your door and Joseph runs outside in his pajamas. That, that's not what is being said here. It's Moses' understated way of saying that Joseph mobilized an entourage, right? He, he, this was a state welcome. And, and I don't think it was just to impress his father, although you have to know there had to be a little bit of that, right? <laughs> Look what's happened to me, Dad. No, no, no. It's mainly meant to, to communicate to them the love and mercy and grace of Joseph extended to them. They finally have relational peace. Now, one thing I want you to, to, to note is just the, the different ways Jacob and Joseph both respond to this reunion, okay? So, so it says here that Jacob begins to weep and falls all over his dad. And if you're into the Enneagram, you realize Joseph was an Enneagram 4. You understand that, right? He's crying at every scene. He's very emotional. His dad is more like, now I can die. I'm in a good place. 
This is called the Nunc Dimittis. It's, it, it, it means, it comes from Luke chapter 2, when Simeon says, now that I've seen the Messiah, I can die. You can take me, Lord. That, that's what this is. Jacob is basically saying, now that I've seen my son, Lord, you can take me. You know, I had my own Nunc Dimittis back in 1998. I said, God, if you would just allow Tennessee to win the national championship in 1998, I'll never ask anything from you again about football. And God said, deal. And he's been faithful in that because they haven't won anything since. Okay, anyway, so that, that, that was mine. And this is Joseph's. And here's what's so sweet about this, right? Because, you know, peace and reconciliation in this life is not guaranteed. It's not guaranteed. But sometimes God is just so gracious to give it anyway. Just as a foretaste, just as a reminder that one day, all the things that divide us this season, Oaks, I want you to think about this. All the things that divide us this season are nothing in Christ. In heaven, they won't be an afterthought. They, they, they won't even register. We won't have a memory of them. And some of us, when we think about the lack of peace in our lives, we think about a marriage, or we think about a relationship with a child, or we think about um, estrangement from a friend, and we have been hoping and praying and trusting God and have not seen any fruit from that. And here's my, here's my encouragement to you. Just keep on praying. Keep on walking in faith. Certainly, peace is not guaranteed. Jacob could have had a big chariot accident on the way back to Egypt, right? God's still faithful. God is still faithful. But man, sometimes as long as we have breath and the gospel is at play and the Spirit's power is at work, we keep on walking in faith, hoping and trusting that God will make a way for us. So if you're in that place this morning, that, with that prodigal, with that marriage, with that estrangement, with that distance, keep trusting, keep praying, keep walking. And thirdly, and we're done with this, finally, we see God's grace in his protection. Now, it's an interesting piece of strategy on the part of Joseph. You know, guys talking to the brothers, Egyptians hate shepherds, so I got a great idea. Go tell Pharaoh you're a shepherd, Okay. And not only that, like, play it up. Wear your shepherd's garb and bring your crook and, like, no hiding behind this. Okay, you're, you're, be, be all of this, right? Now, we're not sure what the, um, the genesis of this estrangement was between shepherds and Egyptians. It might just be as simple as city folk, uh, rural folk kind of thing, okay? One being suspicious of the other. But what's very clear is that Joseph doesn't want them to hide this. He wants, in verse 34, he says, make a specific point of telling Pharaoh this. See, it's, it's a little bit of a rope-a-dope, right? It's a little bit of that, hey, uh, me thinks thee protest too much, right? Because Goshen was the prime real estate of Egypt. It was the pasture land. It was a distance from the capital it was, it was a safe place. It was a secure place. And we can see in this, can we not, God's gracious provision for the people of Israel. 
He's saying, not only am I going to bring you down to Egypt to save you and give you food for your bellies, but I'm going to protect you spiritually. See, one of the pr- principal calls of, God's, of God to his people is to be holy. It's still his principal call to us, to be separate, not necessarily geographically as it was here, but to be separate in lifestyle and not to intermarry and not to intermingle Christianity with other philosophies and religious strains. And that was God's concern for his people. Because remember, he was going to bring them out of Egypt and they had to be a people wholly set apart, worshiping him and him only. Goshen was their salvation. Goshen, in a sense, was their ark. Now, why do I say that? Ark, A-R-K, like Noah's ark. Look in verses 5 through 7 for a second. One of the things, one of the, the, the language that's used there, where it talks about how Jacob and his folk came into Egypt, he and everything he owned, all his descendants. I want you to think back for a second to Genesis 6, when we studied the story of Noah, and it's the exact same verbiage is used there where it says that Noah and his family came into the ark he and all his possessions everything that he owned see Noah and his family were being put in an ark for their preservation and Moses same guy who wrote Genesis 6 wants us to connect this understanding that what we see here is nothing less than the grace of God in preserving the spiritual souls of his people, protecting them, giving them rest, giving them respite. You see, they thought this was a grand retreat away from the promises of God. And God said, no, 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 I'm actually going to use this famine, the thing that you think is tearing you apart. That's the thing I'm actually going to use to to take you deeper into me to take you deeper into community with one another. Guys, we should not just be praying as a church family that we will not be divided or that, or, that, or that we can be civil. No, no, no. We should be praying that, no, no, God, bring us into Goshen. Bring us into that place where we have sweet fellowship and union and community with one another. God, let us lay aside everything that encumbers and let us run after our identity in Christ together. Could this be a season for Oaks where God wants to do an extraordinary work of grace through his spirit? See, this is nothing less, is it, than the gospel according to Genesis. See, this is all meant to remind us that it was a physical piece of dirt on a physical piece of land for the people of Israel. But for the people of God, he's given us so much more. He's given us a spiritual inheritance. He's he's secured our souls in the ark of the heart of Jesus Christ who died for us, who is our mediator, who has set us apart, who is faithful to his promises, who is working his good, who who is protecting our souls. Understanding this season, Four Oaks, and it's the same thing that we sang, the body they may kill in this life. But God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Let's pray. Lord, 